Welcome to the Journal of the Southwest Radio Podcast, a production of the University of Arizona Southwest Center in the College of Social and Behavioral Sciences. I'm Jeff Bannister. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Tom Sheridan, a research anthropologist in the Southwest Center and professor in the University of Arizona School of Anthropology. Tom has researched and written numerous books and articles on a huge array of topics centered on Northwest Mexico and the Southwest United States, starting with his dissertation research on a peasant corporate community in Sonora to a more recent collaboration with the Hopi tribe. Dr. Sheridan has also been a longtime student of ranching and ranch lands in southern Arizona, which led him, beginning in the 1990s, to participate in the development of Pima County's Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, the SDCP. This has been one of the most innovative and successful county-led conservation efforts in the United States. Tom is currently researching and writing a book on the SDCP, including on the larger land use and conservation dynamics shaping the region starting in the late 20th century, a convergence of forces that led to the successful development and implementation of the plan. My interview with Dr. Sheridan is the second installment of our two-part series focused on conservation in southern Arizona. The first was with Brian Powell, who now serves as a Pima County Park Superintendent with Pima County's Natural Resource Parks and Recreation Department, and who for several years was pivotal to developing the county's biological monitoring program. We hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation, and we thank you for listening to and supporting the JSW Radio Podcast. Tom Sheridan, welcome to the JSW Radio Podcast. It's a pleasure to talk with you today. Glad to be here, Jeff. So in the late 1990s, you were uh, the chair of the Ranch Conservation Technical Advisory Committee uh, with the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. And uh, the conservation plan, or the SDCP, is a a multi-species planning process uh, that was adopted by the Board of Supervisors to balance between development and uh, conservation. And as I understand it, you're currently writing a history of the plan, although I'm sure it's it, it spans a little bit further out than that. Uh, but I was wondering if you could start us off by kind of give a, giving us some basic uh, information on the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan and maybe a little bit of context for how it uh, how it came about. Yeah, well, the the plan was triggered by the 1997 listing of the ferruginous pygmy owl by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as endangered. What Pima County decided to do back then was instead of responding to species being listed on a species-by-species basis, which is very, very time-consuming, you know, want to build a road, or put a, you know, a gas line through, or build a school, or build a business, or put in a subdivision, if it's in critical habitat of the listed species, then you have to meet certain criteria uh, established by U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the Endangered Species Act. And so Pima County decided that it wanted to get ahead of the curve. And instead of applying, you know, just to, you know, just to be able to continue to, to work under the list, the listing of the, the pygmy owl, it decided to, to uh, seek out a multi-species habitat conservation plan under the Endangered Species Act 
for not only all listed species, but all species of plants and animals that might be vulnerable to Mahima County in the next 50 years or so. Mm -hmm. And uh, habitat conservation plans are amendments to the Endangered Species Act that give entities in question, whether it's uh, a county government or whether it's a municipality or whatever, certain measures of incidental take. So, for example, you know, under the Endangered Species Act, you're not allowed to take a species, which means kill a species or destroy part of its critical habitat. Mm -hmm. uh, if you do that, you face penalties. And with a habitat conservation plan, you get protection from incidental take rather than deliberate take, as long as you come up with a mitigation plan to protect the species elsewhere, to, or to protect, in most cases, protect the critical habitat of the species. Mm -hmm. So in this case, you know, it was triggered by the cactus ferruginous pygmy owl. So anyway, that's what the county decided to do. Mm -hmm. And it set in motion this incredibly ambitious, visionary process that it called the Sonora Conservation Plan. And its goal was to ensure that the whole suite of plants and animals native to Pima County would be preserved going into the future. Mm -hmm. And it was designed to not only preserve biodiversity, but also to uh, preserve as much open space as possible around Metro Tucson mm -hmm. for its two major goals. And in order to do that, the county set up four technical advisory teams composed of both experts and in some cases stakeholders that would advise the county as it moved forward. And I was uh, asked to be to chair the Ranch Conservation Technical Advisory Team because Pima County, in my opinion, to its credit, decided ranch conservation, the conservation of working ranches would be the, the most effective way to preserve biodiversity and open space around Metro Tucson. And they argued that working ranches really had constituted the, uh, the outer boundaries of Metro Tucson ever since, you know, Tucson began the development in uh, territorial days. Mm -hmm. And to summarize some of the major accomplishments that the plan uh, has accomplished so far, first of all, the plan was a very ambitious plan to preserve biodiversity and protect open space uh, in Pima County. And its two more, most important uh, accomplishments to date are, first of all, it was awarded a multi-species uh, habitat conservation plan that covers 44 species, both plants and animals, in, in Pima County, and uh, not all of those species are, are, are listed as either endangered or threatened. Mm -hmm. 
So what the county did when it created these technical advisory teams, the most important was the one that they called the science technical advisory team. And that brought, you know, it had its, its members who were all, you know, wildlife biologists, ecologists, or federal, state, and county land managers. But their job was to look at all the species, both plant and animal, in Pima County and determine which ones were most vulnerable in Pima County going forward over the next 25 to 50 years. And originally, the science technical advisory team came up with a list of 55 species that they labeled priority vulnerable species. In other words, these were the plants and animals that, in their opinion, and in the opinion of the more than 50 different scientists that consulted with the science team, that would be vulnerable to the kind of development that Tucson and Pima County have demonstrated since World War II. Mm-hmm. That list of 55 species was whittled down to 44 species because uh, some of the species were not, their habitat was not under the jurisdiction of Pima County. Ah, uh, okay. Mm-hmm. So the Habitat Conservation Plan covers those 44 species. And in order to, uh, to be awarded that plan, Pima County had to demonstrate, first of all, how it would protect the critical habitat of those species. And then secondly, how it would pay for the protection of those species, how it would mitigate the impact of development. Mm-hmm. And so these species, first of all, had to determine what plants and animals were, you know, were most at risk over the next 25 to 50 years. Then the technical, the science team had to figure out what was the critical habitat of those first 55 and later 44 species. And in some cases, there really wasn't very much information on these species. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, they had to develop sort of their most educated scenarios for what habitat combination of soil and water and vegetation was critical to the survival of those species over the next 25 to 50 years. Mm-hmm. And that led to the development of the Pima County Conservation Land System, which is now named in honor of Maveen Behan, who was one of the primary architects uh, of the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. Mm-hmm. And that conservation land system covers over 2 million acres of Pima County. Uh, There's a big chunk in the middle of the county that the county has no jurisdiction over because it's the Tohono O'odham Nation, Mm -hmm. and they did not participate in the SDCP. So that big chunk of the county was left out of the plan. Mm Because, you know, they have their own programs to conserve biodiversity. Mm -hmm. 
that conservation land system covers, uh, you know, by far the greatest majority of Pima County outside areas that have been incorporated as cities or towns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Pima County doesn't have any jurisdiction over the city of Tucson, over the city of Marana, over the city of Oro Valley, uh, over the city of Saurita, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But uh, the area that Pima County does have jurisdiction over, uh, the vast majority of the county is, is part of the conservation land system. Mm -hmm. And within that land system, there are different levels of protection. So the, the most critical, the area that the scientists deemed as critical habitat for five or more of the four species is the biological reserve. And within that biological reserve, if, say, a developer wants to develop a parcel of 100 acres, to create a residential subdivision. That developer has to develop that at a three to one ratio, meaning that 75% has to be natural open space and only 25% of it can be converted into home sites and or apartment buildings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so when, when a developer goes up to request a rezoning. And anytime somebody wants to rezone at a level greater than the baseline zone, which for most rural areas in Pima County is one dwelling per uh, 4.13 acres, then that developer has to have his develop his or her development plans uh, approved by the, the Pima County Board of Supervisors. Mm -hmm. And before that approval is sought, the plans have to be re reviewed Pima County Planning and Zoning Commission. But the primary point I want to make here is that 75% of that proposed rezoning has to be preserved as natural open space. And golf courses do not qualify. As natural open space. <laughs> Tom, can I ask you so a uh, quick question? Sure. So of the the seventy five percent that's um, set aside, or actually of the larger lot that um, needs to get approval from the county, is the county going in also and telling the developer within the larger lot where to develop, or they're just leaving it up to the developer to determine which twenty five percent gets developed on and which seventy five percent gets left open. Well, usually the development plans identify what areas they want to develop. Uh-huh. And, uh, so and there, are, there are other nations, slope regulations, native plant regulations that a developer has to follow as well. Mm -hmm. so, so it's a complicated matrix. It's, it's a very complicated matrix. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there, there are, it's even more, more restrictive for riparian habitat. You know, in riparian habitat, a developer or, a, or any entity that wants to do some, make some kind of an impact in riparian habitat 
has to preserve 95% of that riparian habitat. Now, in areas that are determined to be of less biological diversity, like these are also often labeled multi-use areas, two-thirds of that has to be preserved as natural open space. Two-thirds, uh-huh. So, you know, it's a series of graded restrictions mm-hmm, mm-hmm. depending upon how critical the habitat is. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about the listing of the cactus ferruginous pygmy owl is that some of its preferred critical habitat was determined to be the, the uh, saguaro ironwood Sonoran Desert, much of which was in the, the northwest corridor of the Metro Tucson's development in the 1980s and 1990s. Because, you know, if you think about it, a lot of development was following Oracle Road North. Mm-hmm. And that's when you saw both Marana and Oro Valley incorporate themselves as independent cities. Mm-hmm. So the county foresaw that there would be all sorts of problems faced not only by itself, but also that the business community would face all of these regulatory hurdles. Mm-hmm. So the way it pitched this multi-species habitat conservation plan to uh, realtors, developers, the business community in general, was that there would be more certainty on where they could and could not develop and at what level they could develop. Uh, And, you know, there's nothing businesses like more than than certainty. Mm -hmm because that way they can, you know, they can plan, they can make their financial plans into the future. Mm -hmm. So they established this conservation land system. It was adopted by the Pima County Board of Supervisors as the county's comprehensive land use plan. And then the county had to decide how it was going to how it was going to conserve conserve open space and biodiversity, how it was going to show that, yes, it could mitigate future development by protecting other parts of the county outside developed areas. So there are a number of ways that other habitat conservation plans have raised money, raised the funds to do that. One has been to level development fees. So, for example, you know, each new housing unit that goes in, the developer might have to pay $1,500 or $2,000 to the county as a development fee. Mm -hmm. Pima County decided not to do that because it didn't want to engender any more resistance to the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan from the real estate industry. And, you know, new home construction at that time really was the driving, was the economic driver of Arizona's economy, uh, including in Pima County. So, uh, you know, developers, home builders had a lot of political clout. 
So what the county decided to do instead was to ask Pima County voters fund this very, very ambitious program through the sale of open space bonds. And to that end, the county set up an open space bond advisory committee, which I was appointed to, to determine, uh, first of all, you know, how large, how many million dollars of bonds uh, need to and be able to sell, and also to determine what were the criteria for lands that the county would buy with those open space bond funds to uh, to protect biodiversity and open space. Mm-hmm. So there was another process to determine, you know, what were the priority lands of of most biological diversity, both public and private lands that would need to be protected. Mm -hmm. And that process was also going on as the county launched the public part of the the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. and. You know, the county realized that it needed to really, in order to be successful, in order to get Pima County citizens, Pima County voters to support such an ambitious plan, it had to build a very, very broad coalition of interests that would advocate for the plan. That that coalition had to not only include environmentalists, who by and large already supported such conservation efforts, but it had to reach beyond that. And another interest group that became very important was neighborhood associations, Hmm. especially neighborhood associations on the outskirts of Tucson or in areas that had not yet been incorporated Hmm. in Pima County, such as the neighborhood association down in the Elephant Buttes area on the western slopes of the Santa Rita Mountains. Mm -hmm. But in order to hammer out how this plan, what this plan would look like and how it would be achieved, it had to draw on, it had to draw in the business community. It had to involve realtors who sold existing properties in the county It had to involve uh, developers who built no new homes in the community. And so in order to try and capture a broad cross-section of county voters, the Pima County government, and this was all done under the direction of Chuck Huckleberry, who was county administrator at the time, and who remained county administrator throughout the length of the project. He and his staff created an entity called the Steering Committee, which was self-selected so that anybody could nominate themselves Hmm. beyond the Steering Committee. And eventually it included more than 80 members. So it was a very, very large committee. Once that committee was in place, the county made not only the steering committee, but all the members of the technical advisory groups 
like the Ranch Conservation Technical Advisory Team and the Science Technical Advisory Team to go through what they call boot camp out at the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum, where they gave a series of uh, kind of educational overviews about conservation biology, how you conserve the best ways to conserve biological diversity, information about the conservation toolkit, how you set about conserving enough habitat to actually preserve biological diversity across a wide spectrum of species. And so it was sort of a crash course in the state of conservation biology and the state of practical conservation as it had been developed, you know, at the time uh, in the late 1990s, early 2000s. And who are, I'm assuming that that a lot of the people giving this crash course are uh, <clears throat> university researchers, uh, but who else, uh, aside from that, who, who, in, in, uh, who had the kind of, um, you know, technical and practical knowledge of that kind of conservation work, for instance, at that time to be teaching about that? Well, it included a fair number of university uh, scientists because, you know, they were close at hand and you know, many university, uh, many professors at U of A were unpaid consultants throughout this process, just mm-hmm. like I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, with very few exceptions, none of us were paid for this work. So this was an incredible volunteer effort involving hundreds of volunteers. And many of us put in, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of hours in these various committee meetings, going to this boot camp, consulting with one another, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They also brought in uh, land managers at every level of government that had some involvement in what the county was trying to do. So you had, you know, from key federal agencies, the Forest Service, the Bureau of Land Management, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, the Bureau of Reclamation. You had various representatives from Arizona state government, like the Arizona State Land Department. Mm-hmm. You had representatives from Pima County. You had municipal representatives And you also had outside experts, you know, people who could talk, you know, who were experts in conservation easements, for example, or for mitigation banking, Uh, all of these different tools in the conservation toolkit that might might be useful as the county assembled the conservation land system necessary and I'm, believe me, I'm, I'm really simplifying this whole process. I bet it sounds very complicated. Because there were all of these different, you know, committees created. There were all of these different nonprofit organizations that, that took an active part in development of the plan. Say, for example, the Arizona chapter of the Nature Conservancy was a key player. The Arizona Land and Water Trust was 
in my opinion, perhaps the key player, the Coalition for Sonoran Desert Protection, which represented, was this umbrella organization representing many of the most important environmental organizations and neighborhood associations. Uh, and its director, Carolyn uh, Campbell, was, you know, outside of county staff, you know, one of the one of the key architects of the plan. So, but literally hundreds of people took part, gave their input for and against what the county was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, for the first couple of years, the steering committee kind of muddled along because mm-hmm. you can imagine trying to manage a committee with more than than 80 members who represented all of these very, very different interest groups. And in fact, some members began to call themselves the steered committee, but then a subgroup of the steering committee kind of came together and really seized control of the committee, took it into their own hands. And after that, the steering committee really then began to make decisions. But the other thing that was critical in this process, and I, you know, it was such a complex process, was that getting back to the science technical advisory team, Their job was, first of all, to determine the species that needed to be protected, and then to determine their critical habitat. And the the county insisted that that science team draw their conclusions, make their recommendations strictly on scientific merit. And the county talked about erecting a firewall between the science team and any kind of political and economic pressure Hmm. that might be put on them. So after several years of really intensive meetings that were led by Bill Shaw, who was a professor in the School of Renewable Resources and the Environment at U of A, uh, who was the head of just like me, he was the chair of the committee. And uh, the county staff member assigned to that committee was Julia Fonseca. Mm -hmm. So under their leadership, the science team developed what they called the biologically preferred alternative. This was the, you know, the plan that they came up with that if politics and economics were not important. If we wanted to determine what lands needed to be protected solely based on their their biological importance to preserve these species, this is the plan we would come up with. And to everybody's, I think, real surprise, that biological alternative, it was adopted as their recommended alternative by the steering committee. And then it went to the Board of Supervisors and they adopted it. Hmm. So, you know, at a time when the county estimated that 5,000 acres of desert were being bulldozed a year Hmm. because of 
runaway development in Pima County. The plan, you know, the county actually, you know, these various entities actually supported the biologically preferred alternative. Mm -hmm. The alternative that, you know, had the most teeth that would, you know, in the in the opinion of several hundred ecologists, botanists, wildlife biologists, land managers, you name it, offer protection to the vulnerable species Mm -hmm. over the next 25 to 50 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that led to this, you know, this conservation land system that I told you about, which covers really covers most of of unincorporated Pima County. You said about 2 million, a little bit over 2 million acres. Right. And and uh, do you know off the top of your head how many acres Pima County is? 9,189 square miles. So Pima County, uh, through the conservation plan, is protecting over 2 million, 2 million acres out of nearly 6 million acres in Pima County. Yes, but what you have to remember about is that 5 million acres includes the Tohono O'odham Nation. Oh, wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you'd have to subtract from the total. Mm-hmm. And once you do that, a majority of land in Pima County is part of the conservation land system, at least the part of Pima County that the county government has jurisdiction over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Tom, I wanted to ask you, too, so I'm not... Um... I'm not really a student of Pima County um, politics or political history, but I do know based on the interview that I did with uh, Brian Powell with the county and what you're saying too, that that this was a, you know, the late mid to late nineties, or I should say eighties through the late nineties, pretty contentious period in terms of uh, development politics uh, or, or a period of really aggressive development. Um, as you said, just a minute ago, over right, five thousand acres a year going under the blade. How did all this get passed by uh, the board of supervisors? That you know, that's you know. I think first of all, I think more and more people in Pima County were becoming alarmed by the amount, the you know, the rapidity, the voraciousness of real estate development. Mm-hmm. And that real estate development was not only expanding Tucson's urban boundaries, but it was creating suburbs and exurbs throughout the county. So uh, a lot of people's, not only their view sheds, but also, you know, the open space where they hiked, where they hunted, where they birded was going under the blade, was being bulldozed for development. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, there was growing resistance to development among, you know, county, county voters. And there were a whole series of individual fights, like the fight against the proposed Rancho Romero in the northwestern foothills of the Catalina Mountains, that ultimately led to the establishment of Catalina State Park hmm. in 1983. There was the fight against the Gulf American Corporation, GAC, seized uh, the desire to 
developed the Empire Ranch north of Senoida uh, in the 1970s, which ultimately they sold the ranch to a couple of mining companies that then arranged a land swap, and that became the, you know, the Cienega Creek Natural Conservation, you know, the Natural Conservation District out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there. so there were these individual fights, mm-hmm. some of which were successful and some of which weren't. But, uh, you know, there was kind of growing momentum among voters, you know, among a fairly broad spectrum of voters that somehow or another, the speed of development had to be down. So just prior to the county launching the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan, Fairfield Homes requested a rezoning for the southern half of Kanoa Ranch, south of Tucson. The northern half had already been developed, and that's what became Green Valley. Hmm. There still was over 5,000 acres in the southern half that Fairfield Homes wanted to, you know, develop at much greater density than one house per 4.13 acres. So they, you know, they presented their rezoning plan. People, different neighborhood associations began to mobilize against the rezoning for all the obvious reasons, one of which was we've got to, we have to uh, establish a southern line in the sand that Metro Tucson is not going to expand any further south than Green Valley. Hmm. So that motivated a lot of a lot of opponents. But then the Whipple Observatory, the Smithsonian uh, Institution's astronomical observatory on Mount Hopkins in the Santa Rita Mountains, also expressed its opposition to the rezoning on dark sky issues. Hmm. They argued that, you know, if Fairfield Homes were to build several thousand new homes there, that that would dramatically decrease the dark sky value of their observatory. Now, at that point, the Board of Supervisors was dominated by a Republican majority. The only two Democratic supervisors on that board were Raul Grijalva and newly elected Sharon Bronson. But the other three supervisors, there are five in total, were all Republicans. And in general, they were Mm pro-development. But then one of those supervisors died, the guy who represented kind of eastern Tucson and also Green Valley, died while in office. So that meant that the Board of Supervisors had to decide who to replace him to serve out his term in office. Mm -hmm. And I think it was he had a little over a year left to serve until 1998. That was a very contentious process because a lot was at stake. 
there was a Republican majority. They thought there was a pro-development majority. And uh, I'm sorry, Dan Ekstrom was a Democratic supervisor as well, but fully voted uh, along with development interests. Mm -hmm. So anyway, Sharon Bronson had replaced had one election and had replaced Ed Moore. So you had two votes that might have been Grijalva and, and Bronson, who might have been supported denying the rezoning of Kanoa Ranch. And then you had three Republican supervisors, but then one died. Mm -hmm. And there was a contentious process, you know, a number of different interest groups put forward their candidates, including the wife of the supervisor who had died. But Grijalva and others supported Ray Carroll, but they hoped would be a green Republican. And after a series of maneuvers and, and, you know, votes on the board of supervisors, Mike Boyd, one of the Republican supervisors, threw his support to Ray, and Ray Carroll was uh, chosen to replace this other Republican supervisor. And that gave what they hoped were at least two sure votes to deny the rezoning. But that was still a big, a big unknown as this whole, you know, opposition to Kanoa Ranch was going forward. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, that vote, there were a series of public meetings. And, and generally what happened at these public meetings is that the developer would contact all their subcontractors. You know, the roofers, the drywall guys, the plumbers. Mm -hmm. And those subcontractors would tell their employees to go pack the public hearings. Mm -hmm. A period when you saw a lot of bumper stickers in Tucson that said, you know, construction feeds my family. Mm -hmm. And when the proponents of growth, equated growth with jobs. And the constant refrain was, if you don't support development efforts, like the development, the rezoning of Kanoa Ranch, you're going to cost Tucson and Pima County jobs. So I can remember being at one of those public meetings where the front rows were occupied by all these guys in hard hats. Hmm. But the rest of the room was filled by very, very vocal opponents of the rezoning. And, you know, the public meeting, I think, started about two or three o'clock. At five o'clock, all the guys hats stood up and left. <laughs> because, you know, they were basically being paid to be there. <laughs> and that it's particular hearing, I think, lasted till 11 or 1130 at night. Wow. And you heard from hundreds of people who talked about how they did not want their favorite, you know, 
piece of the Sonoran Desert being bulldozed for more homes. Mm -hmm. And when it came down for the vote for rezoning to be held, nobody was sure how Dan Ekstrom would vote. But he ultimately cast uh, a deciding vote for to to deny the rezoning. And so one of the things that kept Kanoa from being rezoned was this appointment of Ray Carroll to the Board of Supervisors. Mm-hmm. So you see not only these kind of economic and political and cultural forces at work, with more and more people becoming opposed to more and more development, this ever-expanding footprint of Metro Tucson, uh, more and more shift in cultural values from, you know, kind of growth for growth's sake towards preservation of the natural environment, which brought a lot of people, you know, to settle in Pima County in the first place. Mm -hmm. They didn't want to lose the scenic beauty, the biodiversity that had attracted them to Tucson when they arrived. Not only there were major, you know, major larger social shifts, but there were these, you know, kind of idiosyncratic developments that provided the momentum not only to leading opponents of development to make their voices heard, but created a political environment where supervisors who supported environmental protection actually had a voting majority on the board. Mm-hmm. And that voting majority lasted for as long as I've been involved in the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan. Mm-hmm. So, you know, today there are uh, three Democrats on the board who generally vote in environmental protection and two Republicans now who vote against it. But back then, that majority had to, had to flip. And very important in that flipping was the election, you know, the selection and then later the election of a green Republican in Ray Carroll. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to win re-election, you know, election on his own terms and served for 20 years before he retired. Mm-hmm. So would you say, um, you know, based on what I'm hearing from you and what I've read, it seems like, you know, there is a kind of a community place-based consciousness um, that was emergent in the you know, here in Tucson and Pima County, the Sonoran Desert, that seemed to give a kind of a groundswell of, um, you know, of support for the for the plan. Would you say that that's true based on, you know, what you're, what you're seeing in the course of researching for, I guess you're writing a book on this, right? Um, yeah, no, I, I think, I think there was a real tipping point in Pima County with Kanoa and with the Sonoran Desert conservation plan in the late 1990s. Mm-hmm. And then that continued. And other interest groups 
began to see some value for environmental protection as well. You know, realtors, for example, mm -hmm. began to realize that if the properties they were selling were close to natural open space, Saguaro National Park or Coronado National Forest or the Tucson Mountain Preserve, that the value of that real estate increased. And of course, the amount of their commitment for, you know, for arranging the sale of those properties increased as well. And at some point, we were told when I was on the Conservation Acquisition Commission that for the first time, there were surveyors where people valued proximity to natural open space more than they value proximity to golf courses. Hmm. So again, this was 50 years of the environmental movement, people moving into subdivisions, uh, including subdivisions that were on the margins of, of Metro Tucson's urban boundaries, and then decide, deciding that the bull, they wanted the bulldozers to stop at the borders of their subdivisions. So there was a development of this place-based set of values held by, you know, a fairly broad coalition. Now, that coalition is always contingent mm -hmm. and it always can be, can be threatened. It can be threatened by, you know, economic downturns, uh, it can be threatened by a number of different larger forces. But nonetheless, there was this groundswell. And I think the involvement of so many citizens in the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan kept that groundswell growing larger. And I guess the final thing I would say that was critical to the plan's success was the 2004 open space bond election because there had been previous successful open space bond elections in Pima County in the past, but they were much smaller than the bond package we proposed in 2004, mm -hmm. in which case there were over $190 million proposed some of which was earmarked for Davis-Monthan Air Force Base expansion, but still, it it you know it was proposed to give the county about 170 million dollars worth of money to buy open space mm -hmm. and keep it from being developed. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, the election was held in May, not in October. And about 58% of the people who voted in that election voted for the open space bond. Hmm. So that gave the, the county this really big pot of money to buy the open space it needed to fulfill the demands of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to approve the multi-species conservation plan. So you can see how these things are all interlocked. Mm -hmm. But then the county appointed this Conservation Acquisitions Commission that had representatives from 
you know, I was a representative of the ranching community. There were realtors on the board. There were developers on the board. There were environmentalists on the board. And our job was to recommend to the county what parcels of land it should spend this money on. And this is where ranch conservation became key to the whole SDCP, because if you look at land tenure in Arizona, only 16% of the surface of Arizona is private land. Uh, the rest is either owned and managed by the federal government, you know, national forests, mm -hmm. BLM lands, Department of Defense lands, national parks, about 10 million acres is held by the Arizona State Land Department as state trust lands and other, you know, state parks and other, you know, city and county protected areas like the city of Tucson's Tucson Mountain Park. Mm -hmm. So the amount of land that can be developed in Arizona is very, very small. And so that makes the private lands that are still left extremely valuable. Mm -hmm. Much of that private land is held by ranchers because, you know, in, in most of the American West, including Arizona, ranchers are mosaics of different forms of land tenure. A ranch may have a thousand, two thousand acres of private land that generally originated as as homestead back in the in the eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds. Then they also have grazing leases from national forests, from the BLM, from state trust lands, and that all of these different pieces of the mosaic—they're all managed together as an economic unit, the value of which is, you know, what the rancher goes to the bank to get loans from what the ranchers sell for. But for developers and speculators, they were primarily interested in that whatever piece of that mosaic was private land. The open space bond is approved in 2004. What begins to happen in 2005? There was this incredible real estate boom, you know, where land values just skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. And speculators began kind of, you know, circling ranches like vultures, you know, ready to convince the rancher to sell to them so they could subdivide and develop the private lands of the ranchers themselves. They weren't interested in the ranches as for the raising of livestock. They were interested in the development value of the private lands. And at the height of the boom, lands around metro, big metro areas like Tucson or Phoenix accounted for 75 to 90 percent of the value of the ranch itself. Wow. So, so, so suddenly those bond monies are uh, starting to 
diminish in terms of their the value versus the, the value. They're diminishing, but to keep, you know, thousands of acres from being developed. And there was actually more private land in parts of Pima County than in the rest of the state. Pima County began buying ranches. And between 2005, when the bond monies became available, and about 2010, when we ran out of bond monies, every major ranch in Pima County that came up for sale was purchased by the county, which then turned around and signed memorandums management agreements with the original ranchers to manage those ranches as working ranches Hmm. because the county did not want to manage ranches themselves and they didn't have the, you know, the staff capacity to protect and monitor the several hundred thousand acres that they acquired when they bought these ranches. Uh, and I'm let me give you some some figured figures here. Yeah, within the conservation land system, and this is current information, mm-hmm. the county purchased over 180,000 acres, which includes 73,000 acres of fee-owned lands. That means private lands and about 114,000 acres of leased ranch lands, meaning that the county bought um, grazing leases Mm -hmm. associated with those ranches. And generally, as long as those ranches are continuing to be in operation, those leases are renewed by the different agencies. So Think of what that would have meant if the open space bond funds had not been available. That would have meant that during that real estate boom, speculators and developers could have acquired an additional 73,000 acres mm-hmm. that they then could have developed. So we so, would have we would be looking at several more developments on the Tucson slash Pima County landscape than we currently have. Right, exactly. And uh, a lot of private lands in the Altar Valley where I live that were were purchased, there were lands, uh, a lot of ranch land along Arabaca Road that would have been purchased. And the county was in the process of trying to cobble together the funding to buy the huge Sopery Ranch when we ran out of funds. But, you know, a lot of private ranch land was purchased by the county and protected from development. What was important about the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan for me, as someone is who is very interested in preserving working landscapes, uh, the county saw key to the success of the of the plan itself was the conservation of working ranches and that happened mm-hmm. and those ranches are still in operation mm-hmm. you uh, you anticipated my question so i, I was going to ask why what 
forces or our sets of ideas and forces converged here that pushed the county in the direction of wanting to keep ranchers on that land as opposed to just saying, okay, well, we, you know, we have these properties now and we're just going to let them fallow and, you know, go on with our lives. So why, what, what made them decide to, uh, to, to do that? That is a really good question. And that's one of the questions I'm trying to answer in this project. Mm -hmm. I think in part it was political, but I think there was a, you know, a genuine belief by people like Chuck Huckleberry that keeping good ranchers in business and on the landscape was the most effective way to conserve and protect these lands because the dirty little secret about protected lands, whether it's national forest land or BLM land or state trust land is that none of those federal or state agencies have the staff to be out on that those lands on a daily basis mm -hmm. to monitor their health. And, you know, when you're in an area where you've got a lot of urban dwellers or ex-urban dwellers in subdivisions that have leapfrogged urban boundaries, you know, you're going to get more wildcat dumping. You're going to get more off-road vehicle use. You're going to get more uh, invasive species. You're going to take fire out of the toolkit because, as we know, the protection of private property always trumps ecosystem health, even in fire-adapted landscapes. Mm -hmm. So if you only have a few ranches to protect instead of, you know, a whole series of subdivisions, hundreds of people who have their houses in these subdivisions, you know, you can do more prescribed burning, or you can let natural fires burn as mm -hmm. long as they don't threaten, you know, property. But that's very much an open question for me because, you know, some of the environmental groups that were very much promoting the, the plan, very much supporting the plan, were overtly anti-ranching. Right. Uh, but I think that the county administrator, Chuck Huckleberry, and his staff realized that for a project as, ambition, as ambitious of the SDCP, for a project that ambitious to succeed, it had to bring in a lot of different interest groups into that tent. Mm -hmm. And even if they weren't enthusiastic supporters, they could see some benefit to the plan that served their interests. Mm -hmm. So being a plan that ranchers could see, what, you know, that wasn't turning former ranches into areas where there was no grazing at all, I think that... Um, disarmed one potential group of opponents to the plan. Mm -hmm. 
you know, the county was trying to conserve large landscapes, which are absolutely critical if you want to preserve biodiversity, with one hand tied behind its back, because number one, no unit of government can keep people from moving into an area. The only way you can control that is through zoning. Mm -hmm. And according to Arizona state law, and this supersedes county regulations, you can develop your property any way you see fit as long as you don't drop below baseline zoning. Mm -hmm. And one thing we could talk about is wildcat subdivisions, which are the kind of subdivisions, you know, you see on Sierra Mountain Road out here, you know, all around the margins of Tucson, where it's kind of anything goes. Like a Sandario Road out on the west side of the Tucson Mountains, that area. Right, Ever Valley Road, you know, kind of uh, single lots, manufactured homes. And, you know, if you want to put in a, a wildcat subdivision, you do not have to go before any county. You don't have to go before the Planning and Zoning Commission. You don't have to go before the Board of Supervisors. You don't even have to provide basic services like roads or utilities. It's kind of buyer beware. Mm -hmm. And you can develop your parcel up to five times as long as it doesn't drop below whatever the property's baseline zoning is. And in most areas of the county outside the incorporated areas, that's one dwelling per 4.13 acres. Mm -hmm. So you've got 100 acres. You can divide that into 20 acres. And whoever buys the 20-acre parcels can divide that into five four-acre parcels if they want to. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to provide anything. But once people buy those parcels, then they want county services. Right. They want county roads. They want uh, sheriffs, sheriff protection. And one of the things the county did was conduct a study prior to the SDCP. Wildcat subdivisions were fiscal black holes. Hmm. They were drains on county resources because the primary way that counties fund their governments and all the services they provide, you know, medical, uh, police protection, road grading, water, you name it. The final one, the, the fundamental way they fund those services is through property taxes. Mm -hmm. But Wildcat subdivisions, they looked at the total, you know, that the property taxes those subdivisions generate are less than the cost of the services the county has to provide to people who are living there. You know, in the best of all possible worlds, the county only wants planned developments because generally they develop properties that are of higher value than, you know, a single wide on five acres. Right, right. Uh-huh. Well, and this this just seems like such a 
um, a sticky issue for our current epic because you know the huge increase in house values or especially since the pandemic uh, among other things um, you know businesses going belly up during the pandemic especially service businesses you know there's so many uh, people who are um, experiencing some form some condition of homelessness or home uh, you know housing insecurity that you know it seems like this is a very tricky issue for county and city, of course, but but for county government too, because I've noticed that, um, you know, there are a lot of places where people are starting to kind of colonize uh, on the, uh, you know, the outskirts of Tucson and, and other cities. Yeah, and, and after the 2004 bond election, open space bond election was approved, we all thought that there'd be another bond election in 2008, mm-hmm, right? I which remember. would give us more funds. But what happened in 2008? Yeah, the, the crash, the great crash. The great crash. So the bond election kept getting delayed year after year after year. And when they finally decided to hold it, which I think was in 2015, there was so much pent up demand for bonds for other social services, for recreation, you name it. Mm-hmm. You know, it just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And even though the county tried to whittle it down, voters rejected it. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So, one of the things I want to do with this project is to bring more attention to what the county accomplished because, you know, the Sonoran Desert Conservation Plan is the most ambitious, most visionary plan at the county level. It's the biggest habitat conservation plan. And, you know, in, in, in a city like Tucson, we have this constant turnover of people and many newcomers, they've never heard of the plan. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to raise awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Well, Tom, I think uh, by doing this interview, hopefully we can uh, inform you know some broader audiences about what you're doing. But I think it would be great to um, re- revisit all of this and talk a little bit more once you've had a uh, chance to get deeper into your uh, your uh, research uh, for this project. And I know you're you did tell me the other day you're already starting on some writing for it. Um, I bet it's a huge amount of research, but uh, it'd be great to talk to you again down the road. Yeah, and, and you know, I've so far I've really been concentrating my effort on kind of what was happening in Pima County in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s that created this constellation of forces that made the plan possible. Uh, well, Tom, I think that's a pretty good place to end. Thank you so much for uh, for for uh, discussing this important issue uh, with me for JSW Radio. I really appreciate it. Okay, thank you, Jeff. Uh, it was a pleasure. I look forward to to a little follow up down the road. You bet. Mm-hmm.